Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this morning is the ninth word, which reads in Exodus 20, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let's pray together. Almighty God our Father, we praise you that in the fullness of time, you bore true witness to yourself, and you fulfilled your promise in sending your Son so that you may be with us forever. We pray that you would make us true witnesses in the world, that our lives together, our words, our actions, would declare your promises fulfilled. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Christians have often thought of the Ten Words, what we call the Ten Commandments, as moral law. These are God's commandments that govern individual lives. And that's true. Each one of the Ten Commandments is addressed directly to each one of us. God speaks to every Israelite who is gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. God speaks to each one of us and says, To each one of us, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bear my name in vain. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witnesses. witness. Each one of us, as an individual follower of Jesus, has to respond to these words of God. The ten words are moral law. But we sometimes miss the corporate character of the ten words. The ten words are not simply given to Israel to govern the individual lives of the individual Israelites, as if their lives by themselves had to be under God's rule, but their lives together were not. The ten words are intended to bring all of Israel's life, everything that they did, every institution of Israel, under Jesus, under the lordship of Yahweh, under the lordship of their God. Their timekeeping is supposed to be governed by God's example. Their families and their sexuality is supposed to be governed by God's word. The way that they treat one another's property has to be governed by God's word. Their use of force is governed by God's word. None of these commandments is simply for an individual. This is social legislation as well as moral legislation. And in a few places, that social or political or legal or corporate dimension comes to the fore, and that's the case in the ninth of the ten words. We sometimes summarize the ninth word in our minds as don't lie, don't lie, don't tell any fibs, but that's not what the commandment says. The commandment says, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor, or literally, you shall not answer as a false witness against your neighbor. And we have to feel the full force of that word witness. Witness means a witness as in somebody who's testifying in court. And the situation that's envisioned in the ninth word is specifically somebody has been summoned to court to testify, and when they testify in court in that public setting, in that legal setting, they're bound to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Sometimes the Bible speaks of false witnesses as witnesses of violence. 
Proverbs 25.18 says, A false witness is like a club, or a sword, or a sharp arrow. You can do damage to your neighbor by being a false witness against him in a, in a suit or in a court of law. You can use the arm of the law, the violence of the law, the power of the law against your neighbor to harm him. You can use the state directly to damage your neighbor. Or you can just use your words to damage your neighbor's reputation. That's the situation that the ninth word envisions. Not simply uh, telling lies in normal daily social life, but telling lies in a courtroom situation. And this isn't the only place where the Bible, where the law specifically, deals with courts. Witnesses have to tell the truth when they appear in court. They have to tell the truth regardless of what pressures are on them. Regardless of what their preferences might be, they're supposed to tell the truth. And those who preside at court also have to act justly. Several times the law prohibits bribery. You shall not take a bribe. You shall not take a bribe to be partial to the poor, nor shall you defer to the great. Judges are not supposed to favor the poor or the great, but are to judge justly. In Deuteronomy 27, the people pronounce curses against various sins, and one of them is, Cursed is the one who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent man. Courts have to be based on truth. The only way to establish a just society... The only way to live together justly together is uh, through the justice and truth of courts because courts, court decisions and what happens in courts shape social life. We can think about how this has taken place over the last half century or a little more than that in the United States. Think of all the uh, aspects of a social revolution in some respects that have taken place because of court decisions. We no longer have Jim Crow laws because they were struck down by the Supreme Court. We now have abortion on demand because all prohibitions of abortion or restrictions on abortion were struck, by, struck down by a court. We now have a redefinition of marriage because the court decided that marriage no longer meant what everyone thought it meant. And that has ripple effects and revolutionary effects throughout our society. That's not accidental. Courts are always shaping social life. They decide who's going to, who's going to win and who's going to lose. They're going, to de- to, they're going to determine certain outcomes. They're going to shape the way we live together. And if our courts are controlled by money, then the rich are going to control the way society is shaped to their own benefit and for their own interests. If courts are controlled by violence or threats of violence, then the violent and malicious are going to be able to control the way society functions. A society can only be just if it's founded in truth, and particularly truth in courts of law. That's what this commandment specifically deals with. But the word, the the verb that's used here, I think, opens up a wider application. Thou shalt not answer as a false witness against your neighbor. I think the specific, the specific picture is, or the specific situation is somebody answering a court summons, or somebody asking, answering a question in court and not speaking falsely. But that usage, I think, opens up the Ninth Commandment to all kinds of speech. Because all human speech, all human speech is answering speech. Even before Adam began to exist, before he ever spoke a word, God was speaking. God spoke to him before he could speak back. And God spoke a world into existence. The whole creation answers back to God. God speaks and the world responds 
God speaks to human beings and we answer back to Him. We never speak an initial word. When we come into the world, we're not speakers. We have to learn to speak. And we learn to speak by answering others who are speaking to us. All human speech is answering speech, either answering back to God or answering back to another human being. And so when this commandment tells us that we should not answer with false witness, it's talking specifically about a courtroom situation, but it broadens out to include all forms of speech. None of our answering speech should be false speech. And then it, because of that, that broadening out covers all kinds of false speech or uh, wicked speech that the Bible deals with in great detail. According to Luther's catechism, this prohibits betrayal, slander, the spreading of evil rumors, gossip. The Proverbs tell us that we can sin by talking too much. Too much speech, too much answering speech is a problem. The babbling fool comes to ruin. He just talks too much. He's going to say something wrong. Timing is everything, according to the Proverbs. A word spoken in the right circumstances is like apples of gold in settings of silver. A word spoken in the wrong circumstances is not an adornment. A word spoken in the wrong circumstances is a rotten word that doesn't edify, that doesn't build others up. We know that sweet speech can be seductive, but sweet speech can also be seductive in a good way. We can win over the powerful with our tongues. As uh, Pastor Lusk uh, we'll, we'll point out when we get to, have we gotten to that part of James? I don't know, I haven't been here. <laughs> Eventually, James 3 will be in view. And James spends a lot of time talking about the tongue, a small member, but capable of great evil, like a spark that starts a, great, a big forest fire, like a rudder that turns the ship wherever it goes. What we say determines the direction of our lives. And this commandment tells us that in everything we say, we must answer truthfully. We shouldn't spread lies. We shouldn't use the truth to damage others. There there are times when the truth is the wrong thing to say in certain circumstances. The ninth word is a fitting word, a fitting commandment for our mediated age. We live in a whirlpool of rumor and innuendo and fake news. Facebook and Twitter spread all kinds of things. How often do you pass on something that you read on Facebook without... Fact-checking. Do you know that's true? Or if you don't spread it on the social media, on social media, do you at least think, well, I believe that. I'm drawing a conclusion from this. I'm not gonna, I'm not checking it. Luther says that the ninth commandment requires us to put the best construction on everything. That is, when somebody speaks to us, we should try to understand it in the best way possible. That's not the way social media functions, in case you haven't been on social media lately. The whole point of social media is to make your opponent look as ridiculous, as malicious as you possibly can. Your opponent can't possibly say anything useful. That's a violation of the ninth word. We're not putting the best construction on everything. That's, in fact, the social media is constructed so that we're, uh, we're discouraged from doing that. If you're on social media and you want a lot of people following you, you want to say provocative things. Things that are not necessarily putting the best construction on your enemies or on your opponent's words or on his actions. This is not, this is not a misuse of neutral technology. The technology is set up so that it encourages certain kinds of speech that violate the Ninth Commandment. And the other side of our current situation 
when we're living in a, a whirlpool of lies and innuendo and fake news, the truth is treated as hate speech. And so we gingerly tiptoe around the truth. We won't speak the truth forthrightly because we don't want to trigger or offend anyone. But that too is a violation of the biblical commandments about speech. In Leviticus 19, just after Leviticus 19 states Jesus' second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, it goes on to say that you should reprove your neighbor. These aren't contrasts. These aren't contradictions. You love your neighbor by reproving him, by speaking the truth to him, by trying to win him back from a way that's going to lead to his destruction. Truth-telling isn't always nice. Truth-telling stirs up conflict. The prophets stirred up conflict with their truth-telling. Elijah wasn't nice in the way he addressed Ahab, but he spoke the truth to Ahab. And we need to be people of the truth really ready to speak the truth, even if it causes offense, even if the world tries to suppress truth-telling. We need to avoid the lure of uh, the lies that are spread throughout our, our world, and we need to avoid the pressures and the fear of telling the truth. The ninth word is a part of the second half of the Decalogue. It's, uh, and as we've looked at the Decalogue over the last number of months, we've seen that the Decalogue is divided up into two sets of five commandments. The first five commandments all deal with, one way or another, deal with uh, God's uh, attacks on God. They deal with idolatry. The first commandment is kind of the heading for the first five commandments. Thou shalt not have any gods before me by avoiding images, by bearing his name rightly, by keeping Sabbath, by honoring parents. Those are all ways of right worship. And the second half of the Decalogue is about murder and attacks not directly on God, but on God's image. We attack God's image when we murder or harm our neighbor. We attack God's image when we commit adultery or other sexual sin that damages the image of God that exists within marriage. We damage our neighbor. We attack him. It's a kind of murder to take his property. And we damage our neighbor when we steal his good name and when we bear false witness against him. Murder is a direct assault on the image of God, but uh, false witness is an indirect assault on the image of God. Our neighbor's good reputation, we should defend it rather than destroy it, rather than seek to undermine it. All of these second five commandments deal with our relations to our neighbor. But interestingly, the neighbor comes up explicitly with the, with the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor, thy neighbor. That's the first time the neighbor has been mentioned explicitly in this uh, set of Ten Commandments. And that's significant. It doesn't say don't murder your neighbor, don't commit adultery against your neighbor's wife, or don't steal from your neighbor. The place where it brings up the neighbor is in forbidding sins of speech. I think that's significant, because most of our interactions with our neighbors have to do with the way we talk to and about our neighbors. We aren't often in a situation where we're, uh, we have the opportunity to kill our neighbor or physically harm him. We may be in a position to harm his property in some way. But we're much more apt to harm our neighbor by harming his reputation, by bearing false witness in some fashion or other, by spreading gossip about him, by believing gossip about him. That's why the neighbor first appears in the ninth word, because this is where our sins are most particularly found in our relations with our neighbors. 
Like the other nine, like the other commandments, the ninth commandment is a commandment that reveals Jesus to us. That's a point I've made throughout this series. Uh, the Lord is addressing Israel, Israel his son, Israel his corporate son, but Israel his son does not keep these ten words. Israel his son is not conform its entire corporate existence to these ten words as it's called to. Instead, it continues on a history of rebellion, of idolatry, of Sabbath-breaking, of murder, of theft, of all kinds of evils. But the Lord is going to have a son. The Lord is determined to have a son who does conform to these ten words, who reflects the character of his father. And that's the son, that's the true Israel who's coming, we celebrate in Advent. This commandment, like all the rest of the commandments, points forward to the coming of Jesus and the coming of the true Israel. And I think the ninth commandment perhaps does this in a more direct and overt way than some of the others. God has spoken His promises centuries before, and God will prove true, even though Israel and every man is a liar. God does prove true. He said, I will be with you. I will be your God. He's promised Emmanuel. And then Israel, the nation to whom he's promised Emmanuel, goes on its own way, disobeying him, rebelling against him, going through a whole history of idolatry and sin, and the Lord persists in his promise. And the coming of the Son is the fulfillment of that promise. It's God's own self-testimony. It's God bearing true witness of himself. Jesus comes as the living witness to the truth of his Father's promise that He will be with us, that He will be with us forever. And uh, uh, the Bible pictures uh, history, in fact, as a great courtroom drama. That's part of what's going on in our Old Testament reading today from Isaiah 43. The Lord is calling witnesses. The Lord is calling witnesses. He's, He's telling the nations, bring your own witnesses. Bring witnesses against me. I'll bring my witnesses. I'm going to testify to myself, and Jesus is the great living witness. He's my He's my lead witness in this courtroom trial of history. I'm going to prove that I am true, even though every man is a liar. In in Isaiah 43, Israel is not really qualified to be a witness. Israel is blind, not a good qualification to be a witness. Israel is deaf, not a good qualification to be a witness. But the Lord says, you will be my witnesses. The sheer continuing existence of Israel is testimony to the Lord's faithfulness. The sheer fact that they continue to exist until Messiah comes, until Emmanuel, uh, until the advent of of Emmanuel, their sheer existence is testimony to the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord can call Israel as His witness. The Lord bears witness to Himself. The Lord sends His Son as witness. That's what all of the people around Advent are singing. Mary sings about the faithfulness of the Lord to His promise. He has given help to His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as he spoke to our father, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Zechariah sings about the Lord raising up a horn of salvation for us, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. He's remembered his holy covenant, the oath he swore to Abraham, our father. And not only do they testify to the, uh, to the truth and the, uh, the faithfulness of God, but they begin to spread that testimony. They become witnesses. God is his own self-witness in the sending of his son. And then those who see it fulfilled become themselves, become witnesses of that faithfulness. 
Mary, we're told, keeps all these things and ponders them in her heart. But she must have spoken to somebody at some point, or else we wouldn't know what happened with Mary. She presumably spoke to Luke, and Luke recorded it for us, so we could read it, and so we could know what Mary had treasured in her hearts. She poured out the treasure of her hearts and testified and witnessed to the faithfulness of the Lord. Zechariah prophesied to his family and friends who were gathered for the birth of John, the circumcision of John. He testifies to the faithfulness of God. The shepherds see the Christ child, and they make known abroad the things that they have seen. And Anna in the temple, whom we heard about earlier today, continued to speak to him, of him, of the Christ, to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Advent is all about true witness, God's own witness to himself, the witness of those who saw this fulfillment, and that witness that's born to us now in the pages of Scripture, And Advent is also a season that calls us to bear true witness. If the ninth word is about Jesus, it's also about us as disciples of Jesus. Jesus is the true witness from beginning to end of his life. By his very birth, he's a witness to the Father's faithfulness. Throughout his life, he's a true witness to his Father. At at his trial, he's a true witness to his Father. And he witnesses in the face of the threat of death. He witnesses to the truth of his Father's kingdom, even though he knows that it will lead to a cross. And then he calls us to take up our cross and follow him. He calls us to be true witnesses. True witnesses like Israel was, because the sheer existence of the church is a witness that God has kept his promise of Emmanuel. The sheer existence of the church is is testimony that Advent is true. That, the, that God sent His Son into the world to fulfill the promises to Abraham so that people from every tribe and tongue and nation would be gathered and enjoy the blessing of Abraham. The fact that we're gathering this morning is testimony to the nations, testimony to the world around us that Jesus has come. And then we're called to follow Jesus and bear true witness to Him in our words and in our actions, no matter what the cost, no matter what the pressure. Jesus calls us, in other words, to be martyrs. That's what the word, that's martyr, martyr means witness. And a martyr is particularly somebody who bears witness no matter what the pressures or threats that come at him. Jesus was the true witness and he calls us to be true witnesses to him. Jesus was the true witness to his father and he catches us up in his coming. He catches us up in his advent so that we too can witness to the faithfulness of God and be true witnesses in the great courtroom drama of human history. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the coming of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that it fulfills all your promises, that all your promises are yes and amen in your Son. We thank you that by him we have been caught up into your mission to be true witnesses in Christ, to witness to him, to witness to your faithfulness. And we thank you for this season when we can witness to your faithfulness by celebrating the coming of our Lord. We pray that you would fill us with the joy of this season and that you would teach us what it means to follow Jesus and be true martyrs, true witnesses, no matter what the cost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.